This episode is brought to you in part by Wholehearted Love, a new book by Caleb and Stephanie Rouse. Overcome the barriers that hold you back in your relationships with God and with others and delight in feeling safe, seen, and loved with Wholehearted Love. For more information, go to Tyndale.com. Hi, welcome to the Finding Holy Podcast. I am your host, Ashley Hales. I'm author of the book Finding Holy in the Suburbs and an upcoming book next year called A Spacious Life. And here at the Finding Holy Podcast, it's our aim to help you connect the dots between things that really matter and your everyday holy life. So expect a lot of really thoughtful content and a question about my guest laundry because big things matter, but so does the laundry. Here in season four, we are talking all about living faithfully as a Christian in an upside down world. We're talking about all the hot button topics and how we can think Christianly about them. And with me for this week is Caitlin Shess. She is the author of a recently released book called The Liturgy of Politics. Here's a little bit more about Caitlin. Caitlin Shess is a staff writer at Christ in Pop Culture. Her writing has also appeared in places like Christianity Today, Relevant, and Fathom Magazine. She lives in Dallas, Texas. Enjoy this really thoughtful conversation. You'll also get some pointers about how to talk about politics with your neighbors and around your own Thanksgiving dinner table. Here's my conversation with Caitlin. All right, friends, I am really excited to welcome Caitlin Shess to the podcast. She is the author of the recent book, The Liturgy of Politics, Spiritual Formation for the Sake of Our Neighbor. So thanks for being here. Thanks for asking me, Ashley. Yeah, it's been super good. I've loved reading your book. I was recommending it to friends at church the other day as we anticipated presidential debates and vice presidential debates. Uh, So let's talk first about the subtitle of your book. And it's really kind of the thread that weaves all the way throughout your book about the idea of spiritual formation, the idea of Mm -hmm. habits and how we are formed and why politics we might think about spiritual formation for the sake of our neighbor. So can you kind of unpack some of those terms for us before we dive in? Yeah, so um, one of the things that I kind of always have to preface this with is is defining both politics and spiritual formation. Yeah. And spiritual formation, including what we tend to think of spiritual disciplines, the worship of the church, like intentionally spiritually formative things, mm-hmm. but then also including, you know, all sorts of other things that we do that are habitual, embodied, and that give some sense of meaning to us. Mm-hmm. And I want to broaden it not to say, you know, be you know, overly cautious of every single thing you do, but just to be aware because there's so often things that, that we don't realize are formative, even though they check all those boxes, they're Mm -hmm. they're repetitive, they're embodied, they impart some sense of meaning. And so widening it out to think about things, especially in the political realm, things like the media that you habitually consume, the conversations you have, even just the language that you tend to kind of find yourself Mm -hmm. falling into. And then politics, including not only legislation and elections and those kinds of things, but also including just our common life together and trying to get us to think about how things that we tend to think of as apolitical, the neighborhoods we live in, the schools we go to, the grocery store we shop at as being shaped and formed by not only, you know, legislation, elections, things like that, but also just the values that we give to how we shape our common life together. One of my Mm -hmm. favorite theologians who writes about this, Luke Brotherton, he says that politics is the forming 
norming and sustaining of our common life together. And I love that because it's the forming of like elections and, and how the rules will work and leaders, but it's also what stories do we have that then justify those, you know, there's always going mm-hmm. to be a story that a people tells itself to explain why we function the way that we do. And so my goal is to, to, bro- to bro- broaden out both of those words so that then we see some overlap in places mm-hmm. where we might think these things are pretty distinct. But if you're spiritually formed by all sorts of political things, then suddenly that conversation has to happen together or we're going to miss something pretty serious. Because mm-hmm. I think... I- you know, I think you and I probably grew up in similar kind of Christian subcultures in in the sense that, you know, politics was kind of in this little realm over here and our Christian faith was in yeah. this little realm in here, or they were kind of entirely conflated. Um, so, where have you seen some of these conversations as we talk about these terms actually be profitable for people as we um, anticipate an election here in America? Yeah. Uh, one of the things I talk about in the book that is frustrating, but then the, the, the flip side of it is really positive. Um, the frustrating part is a lot of churches, when they have this conversation, they'll use a curriculum or kind yeah. of a Sunday school class, and it'll be, here's, you know, a set of positions Christians should hold, and then underneath each of those is just like a list of Bible verses. Right. <laughs> and there's not a more like foundational question asked about what are Christians supposed to do in the world? What is even the end of this world? What, is, mm-hmm. what are we even here for? Mm-hmm. Um, what is our role with government? How should government function? Like kind of those foundational questions tend to get pushed aside because it's just, how should I think about X, Y, Z hot topic issue? And how should I vote? And if we jump into those conversations without that foundational questions answered, we're going to make some real mistakes. And so the positive side of that is places where people are realizing, and I think a lot of churches right now are trying to do this, and I'm encouraged by it, mm-hmm. saying before we even get to those questions, maybe we will have a Sunday school class, or we'll have a night where people can come and talk about those kinds of things. Mm-hmm. First, we're going to spend some more time just making sure that we understand the whole story of scripture and how outward facing the people of God are always supposed to be from Israel to the church, seeking the life of the world, you know, sacrificing even things that would be beneficial to us for the sake of others, especially the most vulnerable in our communities. And so if we understand not even just how we're supposed to relate to government, but just what is our orientation to the world supposed to be and really having a robust, you know, kind of background of that, then it prepares us better to have those conversations and a lot of the churches that I grew up in, yes, it was just, you know, here's the voter guide <laughs> that will right. give you the list of verses. And I don't think that that helps us very much because someone else is going to have a list of verses. And then we have two competing lists of verses. And that's not giving us a more theologically robust foundation for having those conversations. Mm-hmm. So what, where have you seen some of those theological robust conversations produce some fruit? Um, you know, have you seen people actually begin to examine the ways in which maybe they are more formed by a news channel, you know, um, then by the gospel of Jesus. And, and, you know, how do we begin those sorts of conversations across lines of difference, across political lines of difference to begin to have some sort of common ground, some common vocabulary? Yeah, there's there's two kind of examples in my own life, at least, that I mm-hmm. that come to mind. One is when I first started the job that I have now at a local church in Dallas, where I work with uh, young adults, you know, people in their 20s and 30s, especially yeah. the women. The very first thing I did off the bat was six months in Jeremiah, which is like not something anyone thought was a good idea. <laughs> but I was like, it's my favorite book. Like, I'm so excited. Like, let's do it. I was mm-hmm. taking a class on the prophets the same semester. I thought, you know, this is perfect. And it was so great because it was, you know, 
almost a year ago, maybe longer than that now, actually about two years ago. And so there were some things happening in our city of Dallas around race and justice that were very much, you know, in our face. We were very aware of it. Mm-hmm. And yet I thought it would be sort of counterproductive to say, okay, let's halt normal things mm-hmm. and let's have a conversation about this other thing, which can sometimes be the right move, 100%. Yep. But I thought I, I didn't want to reinforce the idea that those conversations about our political responsibility, about justice in public are extracurricular things that, yeah. you know, we kind of do yeah. in a separate yeah. sphere. Mm-hmm. And so Jeremiah was perfect because while we were still in a space that felt safe for everyone of, we all respect scripture, we all are kind of going to have a conversation. It's not just a lesson that I'm teaching, but it's mm-hmm. a conversation. It was amazing how often, I mean, because the themes in that book all over the place of, right. of injustice and abuse of people, and especially repeatedly calling out the most vulnerable in society are not being cared for. And here's what that looks like. And here's how that's connected to your idolatry. Those are not mm-hmm. separate, you know, a spiritual issue and a political issue. Right. These are one and the same. And it prompted great conversations where people didn't come with some of the same barriers up mm-hmm. because they felt like, you know, of course we're supposed to study scripture. And so I can ask questions using language that has become sort of hot button language, things like injustice or abuse or oppression. Um, but because it's in scripture, mm-hmm. I can have a more honest conversation about it instead of coming in with my preconceived notions. Mm-hmm. And the other thing I would say is that one thing I've learned, you know, I'm a nerd. <laughs> and I want in these conversations to be like, I have all the information. You know, yeah. if we're talking about race, we're talking about injustice, you've got your statistics, I've got mine. Like, I'm going to win this, you know, argument right. when it comes to yeah. thoughts. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I've got the data to back it up, the philosophy and all that kind of stuff. And I've realized that what's so much more helpful one on one or in small groups in my church has been having a conversation where we can ask some sort of disarming, surprising questions instead Mm -hmm. of responding with the same talking points that they know I'm going to respond with. Mm -hmm. Um, Asking questions about what are you actually afraid of? You know, you presented this thing and you said this was the worst case scenario was X person being president or this policy being passed. What do you think will actually happen? And it can Mm. be sort of disarming and lower the temperature a little bit of those conversations. And people might say things that are more honest than they would if they're kind of in those same patterns of the arguments they're used to having. Yeah. And it can get to some of that emotional affective level of things. You know, mm, what are you yeah. actually wanting out of your life? Um, yeah. I had a conversation with a woman in my church where by the end of it, we both realized your identity is based in certain stories about the goodness of your own work and the fact that you have earned the things you have. And some of these conversations about injustice are threatening that identity. Yeah. And so I'm worried about how you vote. I care about how you engage in your community. But first we have to deal with mm. this theological thing that's going on and the spiritual thing that's going on where even if it didn't affect your vote and it does, but even if it didn't, that would be an identity issue we would need to work through. Mm. But I wouldn't have gotten to that if we had stayed on the level of, here's all of my facts, here's all of my data. Um, And I think she would have left thinking even more in the way that she had before. That's so good. I love those. I think that's such a helpful, even, do you have any other questions that you ask? Like, what are you afraid of? Like, can you you give us like your top three or five questions that you, you know, is that kind of helps you actually converse about what's really going on underneath politics and partisanship? Yeah. Um, What are you really afraid of is a big one. Um, What would it look like for your community to flourish is another big one. Mm -hmm. Um, Changing that language, depending on what those words, you know, mean to me. But like, what what do you actually want for not just yourself? Um, That's a good question too. What do you want Mm -hmm. for yourself, your family, but also your community? Um, And also sometimes just asking, you know, 
what do you think your vote means? Like, if we're going to have mm-hmm. a really explicit conversation about voting and it feels very tense and, you know, here I'm justifying this or, you know, I'm trying to defend mm-hmm. myself to you in some way, instead just asking, what do you think it means? Mm-hmm. You know, what is its relationship to your identity? What is its relationship to your community? Um, and then also asking some questions about about your sense of community. Of like, mm-hmm. who do you think are your people? Like, who do, who do you most feel the need to protect? And mm-hmm. who do you most feel the need to be protected from? Mm-hmm. And sometimes people won't always be honest to some of those like pretty <laughs> you know point blank sort of questions <laughs> right but they're also not still questions people are usually prepared or used to being asked in those kinds of conversations and mm-hmm. even the fact that you're asking questions I think is another important part mm-hmm. not only because you're listening but also because again if you respond with just your information sometimes they're just saying the same thing they've heard from social media from mm-hmm. you know one-sided news or you know things like that and so if you ask a question that that kind of gets underneath that, that can be really helpful. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. What do you make of this current political climate? We just had, you know, at the time of recording, we just had the first presidential quote unquote debate. <laughs> and um, yeah, so how do we proceed as Christians, um, you know, with our primary allegiance as the kingdom of God, which um, I think most Christians would at least assert that that is our primary allegiance. And yet, in practice, either people seem to be yelling on social media or, you know, they're too afraid to even talk about issues, particularly for fear of perhaps offending people. Um, How do we proceed as faithful Christians where our allegiance is in the kingdom of God and yet some of us are distracted by the issues and some of us don't want to engage the issues? Yeah. Um, one of the things that I always come back to, I joke that I, I started out writing a book about politics and I ended up writing a book about the church because (laughs) I always want it to come back to, you know, this is the gift that God has given us with the intention of, of among many other things of forming us in a way so that we can engage in the world without it harming us. There are so many, Mm -hmm. you know, really dangerous, spiritually dangerous things about engaging in politics. And we see this most often in other people instead of ourselves, but it's true right. of everyone, right? That mm-hmm. the the media we consume, the conversations, we have all those stuff can be really dangerous because it's always going to be trying to take the prominent place of our allegiance, like you said, and, and the story that we understand the world through the mm-hmm. lens of. And so I think it's strange that sometimes we try and come up with really innovative answers to like how to engage politics while keeping our souls when it seems like Christians throughout history have always kind of understood that if the the worship and practices of the church are doing their job as they were given to us by God and then developed, you know, by faithful Christians through the sustaining work of the Holy Spirit throughout history, then we have all these resources. And I, and I, especially as like a pretty young person writing this book, I was not trying to say like, here's the brand new answer, you know, like I have figured it out. But just to say that maybe part of the problem is we think of this as some external issue, right? Like Mm -hmm. as an extracurricular kind of thing we have to deal Mm -hmm. with in a conference or we we might have a special Sunday school class or whatever, instead of thinking through having some self-reflection for pastors and leaders, but even for just everyday people in a church saying, okay, things like communion and baptism and spiritual disciplines, these are supposed to form my primary identity and community to be in the church. Mm -hmm. And then that's supposed to have radical effects for the way I engage in politics. If they're not doing that, it's not probably because they themselves are wrong. It might be because we are using them incorrectly. We're communicating their meaning and message incorrectly. Mm -hmm. Um, And maybe in our specific context, we need to emphasize one of these more than the other, you know, something like that, because it's not doing its job. And so, again, it's not like a a super specific, here's the, you know, way to respond, but just 
thinking of, am I not rooted as well as I should be Mm. in the life of my local church? And by being more rooted in that local church, also being connected to the global and historic body of Christ, because that should be the foundation for my ability to engage without it becoming idolatrous. Mm. That's so good. I love that. I think that's so important. Even just to say, okay, you know, how am I actually having these conversations in real life amongst real people too? I think sometimes it feels safer either to like spew our thoughts out on the internet. We will be right back in just a moment. This episode is brought to you in part by Beyond Ordinary Women Ministries, which prepares Christian women for leadership. At Bow, we believe that every woman is a leader because she influences someone. So whom do you influence? Do you mentor a woman, serve in the workplace, or do you lead a small group, teach the Bible, or even lead an entire ministry? No matter who or how many you influence, our free online resources will help equip you. Our videos, podcast episodes, and articles from experienced women leaders will encourage you and perfect your leadership skills. They offer wisdom for dealing with ministry pitfalls, current biblical issues, health for your own soul, and insights for shepherding others well. In addition, BOW offers Bible studies designed to connect women of multiple generations. They provide a challenge to both women new to the Bible and those wanting to dig deeper. Be our guest and browse all of our free resources and low-cost Bible studies at beyondordinarywomen.org. And here is the rest of my conversation with Caitlin. So how has kind of social media and internet conversations perhaps kind of untethered us from some of these kind of spiritually formative practices when we start to talk about politics online? Yeah, I mean, some of it is we live in different realities. <laughs> I just yeah. watched The Social Dilemma. Yes, on yes, yes so good. Really, yes, it's so wild to think. I thought about this with the debate, or even before the debate, when um, Trump's tax returns, some of them were, were mm-hmm. reported by the New York Times. And everyone in my social media world was making the same joke about, you know, I paid more than Trump in my taxes, whatever. Right. And I wondered, like, how is my, you know older woman at my church who I know is, is a big fan of Trump, how is she receiving this information? And it really mm-hmm. surprised me to realize, I bet she's not even seeing my right. whole, my whole feed is filled with people yes. making the same thing, saying the same argument, you know, and she's probably seeing something completely different. And so when her and I meet in the church and we're having Bible study, and because I think, you know, scripture and the body of Christ are inherently political things, we're going to mm-hmm. have conversations that come up about this stuff. Mm-hmm. I'm not even coming into it with the same reality that she is. Right, and so, right. How can we, not only for the sake of that kind of shared reality, have our rootedness more be in the church, but also, you know, the national political conversation, the temperature is so high. We make the stakes existential level. You know, you can't lose any ground or that's the end of your way of life. And usually the temperature is lowered when it comes to the neighborhood next to me has this particular need. And Mm -hmm. I have so many votes down my ballot that have huge implications for the most vulnerable people in my communities. And so how can I not only be more rooted in my local church, but by being more rooted in my local church, Mm -hmm. know the needs of the community around my church. And could I then have conversations with the people in my church who maybe at the national level, we are going to have a hard time having a conversation. And I want that to change too, but could we start with, Yeah. we both agree that the neighborhood next to us that is incredibly vulnerable doesn't have trash service. (laughs) And the city is supposed to provide that, but no one in their community has access to the kind of influence and resources that we do to fight for themselves. So Mm -hmm. could we build relationships with them so that we actually know that? Because we wouldn't know that if we didn't. And then could we use 
things that we know how to do as, as, you know, relatively privileged, powerful people in our context of writing the email and calling the, you know, elected mm-hmm. official and doing those kinds of things. That's not something where you have the same really fraught political questions that you have at the national level. Yeah. And if then you can build some trust with people, you know, in your family and your church, because you've worked together on these other things, I think that would hopefully give us, you know, at least a little bit more calm-headed conversations about those national things because we trust mm. each other a little more. Mm, I like that. And it, it, you know, it gives us hope for being able to kind of bridge divides. Tell, tell, tell us maybe a little bit about the role in which, you know, you talked about the existential nature that like the mm-hmm. stakes are so high um, for our political persuasions, let's say. Why do you think that is? Like, why, especially for Christians, why are we feeling so bombarded or attacked or, um, or feel like if whatever it is, whoever on whatever side of the aisle gets elected, right. my life will end? Yeah, I mean, I think some of it is just the increasing polarization of politics in America. Yeah. There's really, I mean, startling and concerning research that's been done on how more frequently people change their policy positions than their party positions. You know, if you've stuck Mm -hmm. with a party and their, and their policy view changes on something, Mm -hmm. you're just going to change it with it more Mm -hmm. likely. How often our moral positions are more guided by our previous party affiliation than by the other way around, you know? Mm -hmm. And then I think for Christians, it is surprising that, that we would be caught up in that kind of existential thinking because we are resurrection people who are not supposed to be swayed by that kind of thinking. But I think part of the reason you know, us particularly in this particular context have unfortunately had that be really powerful for us is because of the history of kind of cultural and political power that Christians have had, mm-hmm. how that itself is spiritually formative. And so over time, you you kind of understand mm-hmm. yourself, your community and your faith in the context of this particular position you've been in when that's not the position most Christians throughout history in the world have been in. And so when that's taken away from you, you've so closely equated a certain sense of cultural and political power with what it means to practice your faith Mm -hmm. that losing that power means you can't practice your faith when that's not. So again, it goes back to that. Do we have a sense of, I am more connected to a Christian martyr in the first century than I am with my next door neighbor who doesn't know Jesus. And so I want to learn from those people throughout history and around the globe that are experiencing mm-hmm. their faith in different ways than I have. And and having that sense of my loyalty is more to you than to my country or mm-hmm. to you know, this particular way of life or those kinds of things. But mm-hmm. part of it is that a lot of us don't know our own history. And so we don't even know how we as evangelicals, especially as white evangelicals in America, got to the place that we are. And so we just assume this is how it, it is to be a Christian instead right. of realizing that you didn't pop up out of nowhere. You come from a particular context and you yeah. have been shaped by it even more than you think you have shaped it. It has shaped you. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. What do you have good guidelines for some of these conversations, you know, with friends and neighbors, with, you know, family members around the Thanksgiving dinner table? You know, how do we begin to talk about, you know, these really large questions about, you know, church history and talking about yeah. global Christianity and talking about spiritual formation? Um, what does it look like to practice this sort of, spiritual formation for the sake of our neighbors in our most intimate neighborly relationships, maybe in our own family. 
Yeah. I mean, and that is almost certainly harder (laughs) because, you know, it's really easy, even for me in the church that I'm in, where I have really deep relationships with people, I feel a sense of responsibility and a role there that I don't even feel with my own family and can, and can feel it's easier to be that voice in a different context. Um, The thing that I have always come back to is one, making sure that you are starting at a low temperature and in an Mm -hmm. environment where people feel like their defenses are are a little bit lowered. Mm -hmm. Um, Even taking that Thanksgiving example, what has happened to me in the past, you know, I will say very vaguely <laughs> yes. is that I will have been with family and we will, you know, a conversation will come up about some specific policy or politician. And it's already been raised a few notches by, you know, the, the language we've used or the, you know, shifting eyes over the table. And then that's the ban. Well, you know, Christians in the first century would have done it. And it's like, that's not, no one is receptive to that when you're using it as a weapon, right. <laughs> when it becomes a part of the building, you know, heat in the conversation. Mm-hmm. And so I've had to learn to be like, okay, I'm, I'm biting my tongue, maybe a little bit during this particular heated moment. And maybe the next day when I'm sitting with a a cup of coffee and we're kind of in a calmer space and I can say, Hey, I've learned these things, you know, in the past few years that have been really formative to me. And I think they have some impact on our political engagement. But before I even talk about that part of it, could I just share with you some of these kinds of things and, and hopefully being in a context where, especially for, for younger people (laughs) where you have humility and you're asking questions and you're not coming in, you know, as the, for me, the standard seminary student, that's like, I have all the answers now. (laughs) Right. Yeah. Um, but really trying to think being able to have the emotional intelligence to read the temperature of a room in a situation and not to moderate it by kind of cooling it by acquiescing to what other people think or by, you know, compromising on your convictions, but having wisdom to just know, like, can I wait to say this thing later? Or could I say it in a way that is, Mm -hmm. is softer or better received? Um, And honestly, like this is the most Christianese answer, but praying while you're talking, praying before you're talking, like it's, I'm always surprised by how much that seems like, oh yeah, sure. You know, whatever, but God will be working whether I pray or not. But then the conversations I have that were really soaked in prayer from the beginning have always gone better than the ones Mm -hmm. that haven't partially because I think I start the conversation out going, I don't fully have the resources to deal with the idols that have really strangled someone's heart. Like that's going to be a work of the Holy spirit. And I'm going to try to be faithful to, to the resources God has given us and try and have that conversation. But I ultimately can't do what only God can do. Mm, So good. I love it. Those are some helpful things. Thinking about lowering the temperature, waiting, wisdom, asking good questions, you know, sharing your story instead of, Mm -hmm. you know, here, let's have a debate about this particular thing. I'd love it if you could talk about this idea of how we could even think about our vote. You know, is it a statement of our conscience? Um, Mm -hmm. Maybe even talk about people who tend to be single issue voters, um, as well as, you know, what does it look like to steward our votes? How do we do it for the sake of our neighbors? I realize that might be another whole book, but yeah. take a shot at it. <laughs> sure. No, I feel like one of the things that I've been saying constantly to, to people in my own context and to people asking about the book has been, we have somehow as Christians taken on again, because of the history and the context that we are in, taken on this idea that for us as Christians, we are a lobbyist group or a special interest group. Mm. And so when we engage in politics, it is for protecting ourselves and our own interests. And that seems natural for people who are not Christians. Of course, if you have certain shared interests with a group of people, you'll fight for those. 
And yet we have every theological reason, again, to going back to just the story of how God's people have always, you know, been commissioned, whether it was before sin even entered the world of ruling and reigning using Hebrew words that are not the harsh words that are used later, but the, the stewarding words, mm-hmm. um, the people of Israel that literally the first conversation that God has with Abraham is like, I will make you a nation to bless the nations. And then the, even through the church. Um, and so having that sense of we don't have the option of acting like a special interest group. Mm-hmm. We, whether it's in politics or our service in the community, our entire identity has always been for the sake of the world. Um, and then when it comes to specific votes, a lot of us have also taken on this idea of my vote is a symbol of what I care about, mm-hmm. who I am, my community, or even a sign of the inner purity of my you know, conscience or, yeah, or, or right. how, how I am able to you know, have everything that I care about and everything that I am represented in this one vote. And if you treat it like that, it is of course going to be fraught to the point of inaction. There's no way that all of what you care about and because you're a believer, what God cares about could possibly be represented by this one vote. And so I think one of the things I say to people all the time is treat your vote like the thing that it is. It is a vote. It is a decision. It's a participation in the political process. Don't weigh it down with all sorts of things that it wasn't meant to carry. So Mm -hmm you have an opportunity to engage. You have options set before you. Um, hopefully earlier in the process, you could shape some of those options <laughs> before they get to you in the final you know, election. Right. But, but what use the options that you have, be faithful, be wise, and then allow yourself to be creative and strategic in a, in a faithful you know, way to say, my votes are going to represent some of the things I care about. Maybe a vote higher up in the ballot represents some of the things I care about because I think those are pressing for that particular election. Maybe down the ballot, there's another thing in my community where I go, the sheriff, the school board member, the the judge for my county, this actual different thing is actually the thing that I think will be really important for this election or for this mm-hmm. particular position. And so I'm going to prioritize it here. And maybe if my vote on some level of the ballot doesn't represent something else that I really care about, I engage in that way with my community. You know, I can serve in other ways that if we have that broader sense of political is also political. Um, right. So I've had a woman in my church come to me and say, you know, in this one particular election down the ballot, she's being good and doing her research all the way down. And she said, I really think this is the right candidate, but they're not pro-life. And that matters a lot to me. And I don't know what to do, but there is a crisis pregnancy center. That's a pro-life place that is run by a woman who's intimately involved in the community that she's serving. It's a very, you know, low income, vulnerable community. Do you think that that is like an appropriate way to kind of balance things? And I said, I think that's a great idea for you to say in this one vote, this other thing is taking, you know, priority and it won't always, and I'm trying to be faithful and wise, but I've come Mm -hmm. to this conclusion and I hate that it doesn't include everything I care about. So how can my other votes or my other, you know, civic participation also Mm -hmm. represent those other things that I care about. Mm -hmm. And I think too, when you're, when you're talking about widening, which we start our conversation about, you know, widening some of these terms, even, you know, if we think about our political involvement, you know, our, the way in which we are working towards the common good, right. That we are a polis. Like as we think about some of these things, then there becomes like less pressure on the vote. So it becomes less idolatrous and it becomes hopefully then that we're actually being the sort of salt and light in our local communities. Yeah. Yeah. And not, yeah, not thinking that, um, this vote then shows everyone who I am. That's a very like, Hmm. um, that, that that doesn't involve a lot of risk. (laughs) It doesn't actually make you get your hands dirty in your community to just say, well, I can, I can check that off. I've been civically involved because I voted the right, you know, the Christian way. It actually is a lot more difficult to say, I'm going to try and vote faithfully, but I'm not going to take that as an excuse to not be involved in other ways. Mm, I think that's so powerful. 
That's really good. Because I think it's super easy just to kind of flatten everything down. Yeah. yeah. Wow. Goodness. You've given us so much to think about. It's a great good. book. I really enjoyed it. <laughs> I would like to know, though, as we conclude, Caitlin, your laundry routine. And the reason I ask this is, like you do in your book, we're trying to, you know, take some big ideas and connect the dots between the big ideas and how we actually live our real life. So what does your laundry routine look like? We'd love to hear. Yeah. So I live in an apartment building on my seminary campus. Mm-hmm. So we have one floor that has, you know, industrial laundry yep. machines. So my laundry routine is usually waiting until the absolute last minute because I don't want to do it. Mm-hmm. Um, and then putting a podcast on and almost inevitably the same thing happens. I put a podcast on, I put my little wireless headphones in so that I don't have to talk to anyone. Yes. Yeah. And I go downstairs and almost inevitably there is someone I know and I have a conversation <laughs> while I'm doing it. And so I play the the kind of game of trying to, especially if it's a man and not a woman, trying to like have the engaging conversation while also not showing that I'm like throwing bras and underwear into right. the <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, So that's usually, usually what happens. Yeah. <laughs> so how's your laundry helped you be a better community in, or better engage your community? Yeah. I mean, because I keep thinking I'm not going right. to be, I'm going to have, you know, the headphones send a signal. You're not going to yeah. talk to you. Right. And somehow every single time there's either someone that I know well enough that I go, okay, well, you know, I'm definitely going to talk to you or someone will say something, you know, the headphones didn't scare them off. And I do think that's one thing that when I initially moved in, I thought this is just the worst, you know, I, I've always had laundry, you know, like in my house and the ability to do it. And I'm like, this is going to be really hard. And it's different here because it's just in the seminary context. And so we're not, you know, especially in terms of faith, not, diverse. Right. Um, but it does make me wonder like, yeah, what would that be like to have this in, in a different apartment building or outside of an apartment building? And it also is reminding me how little opportunities we have like that, where you're doing everyday things in the context of your neighbors and makes me a little bit want to think like, what could it look like once I'm not in this kind of isolated, you know, Mm -hmm. very Christian context to have opportunities like that, that, that connect you with, with your neighbors in, like you said, just, really ordinary, like non-threatening, everyone has to do their laundry kind of ways. So, yeah. I love it. I think that's so good. Trying to find those third spaces um, has always been really important to our ministerial life together. But it's, yeah, it takes a lot of intention and thought. Yeah. All right. Well, thank you so much, Caitlin, for being with us. It's been such a pleasure. Yeah, thank you. You're welcome. Friends, I hope you enjoyed that conversation. I know it was so encouraging to me. I could feel like I could talk with Caitlin for a long time. So I encourage you to pick up her book, The Liturgy of Politics. Maybe hand it around your small group at church or even think about handing it around your own dining table to have some good conversations about how do politics form us, how does our Christian faith form us, and what do the two have to say to one another. Before we leave, I want to help you take some of these great ideas and integrate them into your everyday holy life. And so I'm going to leave you like I do every week with one small step. And I want to take those few questions that Caitlin asked as she thinks about not only her voting, but as she thinks about her ministry in her local community. And maybe you want to write these down or you can just click on over to the show notes, take a screenshot and bring them with you throughout your week. These are the four questions. What would it look like for your community to flourish? What do you want? What do you think your vote means? And who do you most feel the need to protect 
or to be protected from. These would be great conversations to take with you in your own walking, in your own conversations, maybe in journaling, maybe if you are even engaging on Facebook or hopefully face-to-face with someone who might see a little things a little bit differently than you. Because friends, it matters that we look different as the church than simply our partisan politics. We would love it if you could subscribe to the Finding Holy podcast and tell your friends. Share this episode. You can share it on social media or you can text this episode in your favorite podcast listener to a friend. This whole season, we're talking with pastors, theologians, activists, professors, about how we live right now with this confluence of a pandemic, racism, uncertainty, and a partisan culture. You don't want to miss it. So tune in next week as we continue this great conversation about living faithfully in an upside-down world. Join us, because big things matter, but so does the laundry. This episode was brought to you in part by the Enneagram and Marriage Podcast, an outreach dedicated to bringing joy, strength, intimacy, and purpose to couples seeking growth. Be sure to visit enneagramandmarriage.com to find your chemistry together again, or for the very first time.